0: Casey Crawford is the co-founder and CEO of Movement Mortgage, one of the 10 largest purchased mortgage lenders in the country, and a company that's known for giving almost half of its profits back to the community. Really. In fact, the day after this podcast was recorded, Movement Mortgage announced they're investing $100 million to build 100 new schools nationwide over the next 10 years through the Movement Foundation. That's in addition to three charter schools in Charlotte that the Movement Foundation already has built, and they've turned surrounding property into community centers, after-school mentoring spaces, affordable housing centers, and wellness centers right next door to the schools. According to Casey, it's the holistic approach that's needed for true generational change in underserved communities. And it's a model for giving back that other companies can follow. Rick and Casey talk a lot about that. And also about that one time Casey won the Super Bowl. Really. This is Three Things with Casey Crawford.
1: Well, today I have one of the coolest dudes in Charlotte with me, he's a dear friend. Uh, he's built an amazing business, but what I admire about him the most is the kind of guy he is. Casey Crawford, welcome to our podcast. How are you, dude?
2: <laughs> I am, uh, I'm really good, and I'm really nervous um, because you always ask me the hardest questions of any person I get, to get. and somehow I just keep coming back for more, so I, <laughs> it's like I look forward to our time together and I'm also terrified at the same time, it's a really odd uh, experience. <laughs> oh, that is funny. We have no
1: wine on this one. None, so none, We're, unfortunately. we're going, we're going yeah. with, with coffee and tea. Uh, so listen, I, I want people to get to know you the way that I have gotten to know you, and, and I so admire the way you go about living life. Um, so I want to start with, you grew up in Virginia, and you yeah. tell me all sorts of stories of <laughs> A different upbringing than people think. So, to, what was what was what was your upbringing like?
2: Yeah, well, I had a great upbringing. I had you know, a, a, amazing mom and dad. They're still alive. My dad's um, just one of my absolute best friends. He was my hero growing up. My dad played football at Carolina, and so when you, you know, I was a big gigantic kid when I was little, and I just wanted to be my dad when I grew up. And he ran a hardware store in uh, in DC. And uh, during that time, DC that was the '80s and '90s in DC. So that was when DC was the murder capital of the world. And like the crack epidemic was in full swing. And I kind of got like a foot in two worlds because we lived in a, in a very like blue collar but stable neighborhood like in, in, in Maryland actually right outside DC. And then I'd go into to work with my dad a lot because I always want to be with my dad like on the weekends and everything right. else. And we'd um, go kind of really see what it, what it looked like to, to live in a, a really rough urban environment. Uh, and, and you know, a lot of the kids in the neighborhood worked for my dad and so I got to know a lot of these guys growing up. And um, it really, you know, when you're a young kid you're not processing this all the same way. But as I reflect back, it really gave me and it shaped a lot of my kind of perspectives on life and a lot of the, um, I think, passions we have today because I, I frankly saw how tough it could be in America. Like there, there are different Americas and I, I kind of lived in one but got to put one foot experiencing another one in that really tough urban
1: environment in D.C. growing up. When did you connect that dot that that exposure early on kind of has led to a lot of your view of society and your role in society?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it's evolved. I think it's continuing to evolve, you know, over time. I think I mean, hopefully we're always learning, uh, right? And you, you kind of sometimes reflect back on what you've learned. But, um, you know, when I went to high school, I went to DeMatha High School. Right Right, right, right there. On the, it's on the border of Maryland and D.C. It's a real famous sports school. It's Did you play guys. hoops there? That's yeah. a big hoop school. Yeah, man. I, I, I thought you I had a little bit of game way back. Like I Never letting you expose me uh, in the gym. But, yeah, way, way back in the day, I had a little bit of game. And uh, so, yeah, I went, went there. And, and the cool thing about DeMatha was um, – it was, it was all guys, it was prep school, and um, it, it was, they gave scholarship for need and for music, not for, not for sports. So if you had need or sports. And so you know, we, all, we all were wearing uniforms, and you know, we didn't know if your dad was a senator, or um, you know, if, if you're like my buddy Charles, who you know, we had to call the corner pay phone to, to, to go get him. They'd run up forced lights in the public housing um, deal to find him. And that and was really cool. That was really beautiful. Because I mean, you got to build relationships with people from all kinds of diverse backgrounds. Um, and realize like that it was it was what you brought to the team, what you brought to that environment, what you brought to that context every day that made you valuable, not something you know a pedigree or something from who you were. So, I think you know that experience for sure began. I get to go, wow, you know, the, the, man, you, you can be born in all kinds of different circumstances and context, but if you have an opportunity, like if you have or given opportunity, man, pe- people can. Um, can really express all those gifts that they have in really meaningful ways and t- take it really far. But but it takes opportunity. I think it takes an opportunity in space. You a school- I, th- I,
1: th- I think you say something, you, you just highlighted something so important, which is we, many of us won the lottery of the families we were born yeah. into and kind of the areas we were born into. And, and you know, we, we don't appreciate that until you're exposed to people that live in a very different environment um so let's talk about sports for a minute you you said that you were gigantic uh you still are uh uh, you know the only difference between us is our looks uh you know but you know we won't go there today so (laughs) the role in sports for you you uh you you all sorts of sports what does sports teach you about people about yourself about life Oh man! Well, my
2: dad always told me when I was growing up that every lesson I needed to learn in life that, that football would teach it. <laughs> football would teach it, and I think the older I get, the the, the more true those words ring. Uh, and so, so there, there there there's so many so many lessons, um, so many incredible lessons. But uh, some of the ones I really loved were just being the power of teamwork, um, mm-hmm. the the gosh, the gift of the grind. You know what 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 that gift that that can be. The, uh, what, and what that kind of looks like in, in lives. And that translates to business, right? Translate to family and relationships. Um, gosh, yeah, my, my wife was a, was a um, real She was a She, she, would, was tell a you, athlete, she would tell athlete. you, yeah, a far more accomplished athlete. And she would be absolutely right uh, about that. We talk a lot, yes, in our house. Although we want our kids to play sports. Not, not because we want them to be, you know, world-class athletes necessarily, but because we want to give them that gift of like dealing with adversity in controlled situations, of, of learning what it means to like have to trust other people on a team to accomplish something yeah. that you cannot do by yourself. Like you cannot win a football or basketball game by yourself. It doesn't happen. You have to work with a team and you have to push through adversity. And so much of life, I think, is made up of like having a goal, having a commitment, and then coming together with a team to push to adversity and achieve those goals and it just you know it plays out everywhere
1: for yeah, me. yeah that that is, that is so interesting and, and you can say the same thing of learning music or oh, so, you know yeah, where, where absolutely y- you have to grind at something for a while yeah you know i was talking to a, a friend of mine um and he told me a great story his dad was also a football coach and the first time he puts pats on and he gets out there, and you know he gets blown up. <laughs> I'm sure you can remember. Yep. Uh, he comes to the sideline, and his dad looks at him. He goes, "Are you injured or are mm. you hurt?" Mm. And he so realized right there those lines, are yeah. very different things. <laughs> you know, if you're injured, you can come sit with me. Yeah. If you're hurt, now this is when you get up. And in life, a lot of times, you know, we 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 think we're injured and all we are is hurt we yes. just got we just got punched and we yes. got to get up and we're to fight again yeah that's right yeah and
2: everyone's gonna I mean everyone's gonna face some kind of adversity in life like you're going to face it my mom said to me I came off the basketball court yeah. and I was complaining about a hurt back yeah and uh you know said, get back out there get back out there and so I did and I did and <laughs> I, you know I, I I to the point that I was tearing up coming off the court and I didn't you know I was crying my mom you know that's kind of embarrassing you Middle school boy crying your mom on the basketball court. She, she says, boy, you know, sometimes your body's just going to hurt in life. And if you don't learn to deal with that, it's going to be a long, hard life. Uh, six months later, I went to freshman football wow. and they did an x-ray at my back and they found that I had two cracked vertebrae.
1: Thanks, mom. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: And so, <laughs> to this day, I looked at her I was like, mom, you want to like apologize for that? She says, no, you know, I was, I was looking Look to raise a man, not a boy. She so, well, said I'm, I'm okay Logan. with how it turned out. You know, like, mom, uh, how a like, gangster is that? Like, that's <laughs> the craziest. You can you have to apologize for that, mom? <laughs> no. No,
1: joke. no quarter. You know, you know uh, Alan Tyson, right? I don't. Uh, yeah, no. so he does architect sto- sports. And like in my forties, uh-huh. like everything hurts after I play basketball. I went to him. Oh yeah. I said, Alan, is it time? Am I done? <laughs> I love the game. I love to compete. <laughs> you know I get what? worked out. You know what he said? He goes, You're gonna retire when you can no longer take the pain. I'm like, Oh wow, that is so good. Oh, so man. every time I feel pain, it's like, yeah, it's yeah. okay. This is what I get for playing. Uh, and you continue to play and bang. Not, not, and you very, look amazing. Well. not very well, not um, <laughs> All right, so you played at UVA four years. What what mm-hmm. was that like playing college football at that level? Yeah, it, it was, uh, so I actually
2: went to UVA and I, at the time I wasn't sure if I was gonna play football or baseball, I loved both. And um, I got drafted by the Braves out of high school. And Thubs can go play baseball. Holy so one us is not both. like the other. Was <laughs> yeah, it, it was but like I mean, two really dramatically wow. different experiences. And so one, too, it's it's the experience of a, um, a, a revenue sport like football compared to baseball that is not are also dramatically different. So um, you played both. Yeah, I played are both for mean? my first two years. And um, and yeah, it was it was just it was it was work. It was work. That's why I mean, I almost worry for my kids today going to college. Like, are they going to have enough? to do because my wife and I reflect back on it a lot and and, you know so much of my college experience was shaped by the commitment to sports and academics and it was pretty good to have like you know most of my hours filled up as an 18 year old with you know 30,000 other 18 year olds with you know not a whole lot else to do on their hands and time on their hands kind of all day and so that that um commitment to sports really I think shaped a lot of like my perspective on like work ethic and man how you have to you have to Commit yourself you know, to have success, um, and, and it was, it was tough to, to, to do that. I ended up breaking my ankle my third year uh, playing football, and so I couldn't play baseball anymore. So that, that's, that's why I just stopped and just played football. And uh, it was great. I mean, it University, University was a great, great. Sport. It worked
1: out. You ended up in the NFL. for, yeah. <laughs> for three years. The least significant NFL player ever. Yeah, I, got listen, lucky to be I awesome looked good it teams. up, dude. I looked it up. You, <laughs> like, you, you a, like, cut one a touchdown. Catch. Yeah, you one had catch, five one catches. Catch. Oh, oh, come come on, three Man. seasons. You, uh, you were in that Tampa Bay team yeah. that won a Super Bowl. Come
2: Definitely on. the worst athlete that's ever been on this podcast. I, I, was, I was getting like <laughs> really, really like insecure going back through some of the guests. Like, oh my gosh, I hope we don't mention I ever played sports because. Yeah, but I I'll own that one. I think for a while. What, for what
1: would, would uh when was the last the when was the first time you got hit by a real man in the <laughs> NFL thing? Where you're like, holy god, that's a whole different level. These boys are big and angry.
2: <laughs> it is different when people are feeding their families out there, right? Like, like in college, like they're big strong guys. Like in the NFL, and then all of a sudden it's like you have a wife at home who's looking at you like, we gonna make the mortgage payment. Um, the violence kicks up a notch or two for sure. So wow, but it's also a cool experience, right? I mean, I know I know you love to compete and you know business and sports and whatever. And it's I mean, the thing I loved the most about the NFL was getting to line up against the very best men in the world yeah. at this game that I love to play, and just find out exactly how good you are. You know, you, I knew, I knew, I knew exactly what a good receiver, how good I was at block. Like, I knew yeah. right where I was against the best guys in the world, and that, that's a that's kind of a cool, yeah, yeah.
1: cool thing to get to kind of experience. The reality of that. There's always somebody better than oh. us, right? So it's just, it's just yeah, one of those. <laughs> it was definitely my reality, yeah. <laughs> yeah. well, you were in the elite 0. .01%. Yeah, so but then you get to watch guys like good. Steve
2: Smith or something, right? Like a local Charlotte guy. And you yeah. just get to see, you're, wow, there's all these incredible
1: athletes on the field. Yeah.
2: And then there's like two or three. Yeah. And the same yeah, thing yeah. in business, the, the right? NBA, And NBA is the same and, thing. Yeah, like, it's
1: like there's yeah. there's like 10 guys and then everybody else. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and, the,
2: and the, yeah, the ability to separate yourself from that level is yeah, astounding.
1: So was it – I know that right now you do all sorts of crazy stuff, CrossFit, jiu-jitsu, jiu-jitsu and, like, all yeah. this stuff. Is that is that the outlet for some of this or – For sure.
2: Yeah, jiu-jitsu for me is um, – it's probably, like, my, my big mental reset. Like, I was – was, for those of you that don't know, Rick's an amazing therapist, and I was calling him for a therapy session, and because uh, I go to a doctor and they asked me if I was if I had a stressful lifestyle because like, I, I eat well and I work out and all this stuff, and my numbers are horrible. They're like, "You're like literally looking like you should have a heart attack in the chair right now," and yeah, uh, you know, so I'm like, "This is terrible," and, and they're like, "Well, and they start, they're like, well, tell me about your job like, Is it stressful." I'm like, "No, no, it's really not. Like, it's it's really not stressful." I'm like, well, what do you do? And I started to kind of talk about where you're running a company and schools and things, and she said. That sounds like a lot. That sounds like <laughs> I, I kind of paused and reflected on it, and I realized, like, I don't shut off. And I kind of just started to start crying.
1: Yeah, and I, I was remember. like, yeah, it, yeah.
2: It, it, it sneaks up on you, but it is. But for me, jiu-jitsu is, is a place where I can totally reset, where yeah. I can't think about anything else other than what we're doing right in that moment. Right. You know, right in that moment. And yeah. training in town here with a guy named Lucas Laprise, a seven-time world champ. Unbelievable. I mean, it's 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 only a matter of like how many times he beats me in a round. That's kind of the only question. Uh, and and you know when you're in there rolling with somebody that's that technically good, like you just you're just trying to get like yeah. not going conscious. And yeah. so it really helps you be present. I mean, fully, fully, fully smoked at the end of it. Yeah. And um, and yeah, a bit of a mental reset.
1: That's pretty cool. You know, it, it, how infrequently do we really shut off this <sighs> day? You know, and and we blame it on the device. We yeah. blame it on you know whatever it is. But it really is, we've gotten into this habit that we only feel like we're you know alive if we're on on, on the treadmill. When in reality, we're the least alive when mm. when we're there, right?
2: And mm. well, you and I like we text sometimes, and it's outside of work hours. And I mean, we have friends, but then I'm always trying to get a little bit more done too. Like there's a little bit more you yeah. could do, a little yeah. bit. A little bit you know, more we could, yeah. a little more productive. Like, in, and we want to, you know, I know you have a, a huge heart, like you want to help. And I think sometimes that's the struggle too. Like when you realize you have some capacity to help folks, it's hard mm-hmm. to shut off. Cause you feel like you could always be doing a little doing, bit more. Yeah. You could yeah. always be doing a little bit more yeah. and it's, it's, yeah, it can be tough. Yeah.
1: Well, all right. So 2000 and, uh, 2008, perfect time to start a freaking mortgage <laughs> company right <laughs> but in mean, many oh, ways man. the tide went way back out so maybe it was the perfect time but tell us tell us why oh. did you decide to jump i know you yeah you, you started this business with a with a co-founder why how did you know it was time <laughs> my wife asked the same question i think when she's watching
2: countrywide go out of business it does not seem like <laughs> the greatest idea and uh man it, it was it was a tough time to start. However, however, I think you know, oftentimes in, in times of chaos in times of deep adversity, that that's the time that opportunity exists yeah, like always. like the most profoundly, right? So, um, what we saw and, and, and I really did kind of see this fundamentally was that I really believed in a couple fundamentals of the marketplace that the, the United States government was going to continue to facilitate individual homeownership. Like we've always been really big on owning property in the United States; That's it's kind of a core value, and we've always. Um, Supported that through our federal government, you know, through a credit subsidy, uh, by, by really an explicit guarantee of, of mortgages. And when the economies tank, the federal government steps in to help Americans infuse credit back into the system through the mortgage market. So I said, you know, this is really an interesting opportunity while the market is tanking and every mortgage provider is going out, is leaving the marketplace. I think someone's going to have to continue to give Americans um, loans to buy homes and loans to refinance their homes and lower the cost of those homes. And so we go, man. Yeah, with all this chaos <laughs> might be a little bit of opportunity but but you know rick we, we didn't I, I didn't want to just do with one more mortgage company so the world didn't need like one more mortgage bank it didn't need one more countrywide. there was no city in america where you could not get a mortgage so he said if we want to do something if we want to build a business and a community and a company um man i want to do one that looks differently than than everything else out there And frankly at the time the world was furious at the U.S. banking system and particularly the U.S. mortgage system because right. we had brought down the world's economy. Right, the U.S. mortgage market had brought down the world's economy through a lot of fraud and a lot of bad things. And so I was like, man, if we're going to do this, I think there's a huge business opportunity, and I think there might even be a bigger opportunity
1: to tell like a new and better story in, uh, in banking in America. So cool, yeah. so cool. And I want to I want to get into a little bit of the challenges of starting a business uh, and, and all of that. But <laughs> but I, I do want to I do I do want to pause on a point you make. About you know owning property being so essential and the government support and owning property, but how big the you know the racial gap in ownership of <laughs> yes. homes. And when you yes. look back at the history, we we've, yeah. we've done a lot of work on this on Bankrate. Yes, you realize that the government wasn't really helping black families, no. uh, and a lot of that gap still exists. And even though the laws technically have changed uh the underrepresentation representation to st- it's still paramount and I'm, I'm very curious given how inclusive you are in everything you yeah. do what can be done to kind of address that gap moving forward i'm so glad you brought this up and i hope every listener
2: hears this and then turns around and shouts this from the rooftop because it, this this is one of my it really is one of my fundamental passions in this space is that we begin to close the wealth gap that exists in the united states between uh, black and white families, like black family average net worth of seventeen thousand dollars, a white family average net worth one hundred seventy one thousand dollars, and that differential is largely made up in home equity. Right, so ownership of home largely defines that differential, and you, you make a really good point, and you're correct. The federal government, state governments, were explicitly, legally discriminating against um, issuing credit and issuing uh, mortgages to um, black, brown people, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of folks. Uh, it was, it was pretty horrific. It was pretty horrific. However, however, an incredible amount of hard work was done. M- men and women literally laid their lives down to change these laws. And today, today, every I, the, my worst competitor, the worst competitor I know, the guy I have the. Yeah. Absolutely is eager to extend credit and help black Americans realize the dream of homeownership. They have friends in the business. Like, we. We, we so want the black community to start taking advantage of the opportunity homeownership offers to build wealth, to build stability in communities. But uh, Montel Watson runs a black homeownership initiative for movement. Yeah. He's one of my dearest friends, basketball yeah. player, played at Elon, amazing guy. And here's a story he'll tell you. He said that, that he grew up and was actually, became a banker, made straight A's through school, played basketball, became a banker, and started issuing home lo- loans. Was doing that for four years before registered in his mind that he could be a homeowner because his father had told him, never own a home, the banks will take it from you. Hmm. So he's like, I, it wasn't at the forefront. It was this, this subconscious kind of in the back of his mind thought that homeownership was not for him. He's like, my community, my father, our culture yeah. did right. not trust banks. And we said, therefore, we're not going to be homeowners. We're just renters because they'll take anything from you. And so we've got to start changing this narrative and letting the black community know that there are lenders out there who want to extend them credit, that they can trust, that they can work with, and that are actually going to work with them. And there's bond programs out there to actually create no down payment programs to help um, black families enjoy home ownership. We have have actually an incredible amount of uh, qualified black millennials right now who are not in the home ownership game that are qualified, that are ready ready, ready to be and could be and I think should be uh, for like long-term financial success in this country
1: you know the reality is that home ownership is one version of credit but yeah. the importance of cheap credit in our ability to create wealth right and and it's a lot broader and deeper than that but i'm yes. i'm glad to hear you being intentional about this and you and i are doing some stuff in the mortgage space together maybe yep. maybe maybe we should kind of move that up into our priority set
2: yeah i i'd love to yeah and there's there's so much meaningful work that we can do and it really is one of the answers to the problems that we have and so much of the problems that we have in the country are based on, around poverty. They're mm-hmm. based around poverty. And to the extent that we can help people transition. Or inequality out of,
1: of opportunity or, yes. or access to opportunity, yeah. which is this. Yeah. All right. So let's go back to um, what was it like? <laughs> to, uh, to start, like, you know, people look at you know the thousands horrifying. of employees. You, know you have now. like it's terrifying. Yeah, <laughs> it was ridiculous. It, but yeah, I am pretty sure it wasn't beautiful. Early it was, no,
2: on. it was horribly ugly. We were renting a key man space in the Ballantine Corporate Park. You know, I, I I did have this big vision. I mean, I, I meant I said every word that I said to you back then. But we had four employees. I, remember. I mean, how ridiculous is this to say? Hey, we want to you know create a new kind of bank where we love and value one another and we love and value our customers and we love and value the communities we're a part of and there's like four of us you know you kind of um <laughs> said, this is insane and so uh, i really did think that's where you lean back on a lot of those lessons of sports and you go so what do we need to do so first i need to like take care of my teammates and like commit to a common goal commit to a common vision and we did that and we we just started grinding rick and you know i think we're a a uh, thirteen-year overnight success, right? Oh, uh, yeah. uh, it, you have forty-five hundred employees now, right? Yeah, we do. Yeah, we're right five thousand employees, and and mm-hmm. um, you know, it's it's, uh, but it's it's a daily it's a daily commitment. Folks are like, "How'd yeah. you grow? What'd you do?" I said, "You know, we we, we we share the good news of our story, and we attract about fifty new sales guys a month. Yeah. That that that's and you know, you, you do that next month, and the next month, and the next month, and the next month, and it's been a, it's been like yeah, grind, but it's been fantastic.
1: You know, Casey, I think you're one of the few people that i know um and i think this is why you and i kindred spirits we we do recognize that success is the requirement to significance oh yeah in significance you know first and foremost is in our community of employees but you know i think we both understand that it has to be in a broader community as well um tell us about the movement foundation, because I think you're manifesting that through that, and and your vision through the for this is so inspiring and so unique. How you're transferring a lot of your you know kind of equity into that over time, and then you know we'll get into the schools right after sure. that, but, but okay. let's talk about that. Yeah, um, well, I love what you
2: just said. Um, you know, John Maxwell is one of my mentors, and he he has a line that you know, success ends with you, significance starts with others, mm. right? And. Um, man, success I is incredibly that. important. It's incredibly important. And it actually right. gives you the opportunity to do some things that are really significant. And that's, um, that's what really excites me. And so, yeah, the, we have the Movement Foundation. And frankly, the only reason we have a Movement Foundation and Movement Mortgage as two separate entities are legal tax reasons, right? Mm-hmm. Like We think about them as two just um, interconnected organizations. And really, the Movement Foundation just exists to be the outflow giving arm of Movement Mortgage. And we always had a vision. We told, we told you guys. We had four employees. We want to love one another. We want to love our customers, and we want to love the communities that we're a part of. Because banks had not been known for the way they loved communities at that time in 08, right? they have been known for how they kind of devastated communities with, with, with tough loans and things.
1: But stop there for a second. Sure. How many companies talk about love? (laughs) <laughs> like, more right.
2: more more today no, I, i'll yeah, say when no, it wasn't cool in i used to have to do yeah kind of swallow afterwards now it's like getting cool to talk about love and, which is great which is great i mean that's what we, yeah, wanted, you, that's you, what you, we you want you were to avant-garde you were ahead of your times case. <laughs> you're crazy yeah yeah so
1: so i know that uh you have a, a deep deep passion for education yeah. and to bringing great education to those who don't have it yeah. don't don't have access to it and You've been at this now for a while, and it's starting to see great results. Tell us about movement schools and tell us kind of a bit of the journey. Where are you? More importantly, where are we going next in this? And and then realize, I said we because I'm going to attack along on your train.
2: (laughs) Whether you want to or not, I will pester you.
1: Um, No. So I I really,
2: um, I think, and this goes back to kind of growing up. I, I think at a very early age, and particularly in high school, began to see the institution of schools as institutions that could help kids break the chains of poverty, hmm. this generational chains of poverty. I, and I saw that, and I experienced it, and my have friends that experienced it. And so that was in the back of my mind. And um, as I was thinking about how movement as a company was going to pour back into communities in really meaningful ways, not, not in you know, ways just to, just to um, you know, write kind of a, a, a check, but really actually try to solve some problems in a meaningful way, I looked at education. And so I think one of the most transformational vehicles we can use to transform communities is um, the education system in America. And if we can fix that, we can start helping kids leverage an education to um, change their experience. Because right now in Charlotte, North Carolina, where we live, uh, we have 37 public elementary schools that mm-hmm. are serving Title I kids. A, t- a Title I school is 65% or more of the kids are adding free or reduced lunch. We have 37 F schools. So we're uniformly failing to give our kids the educational opportunity they need to break these chains of poverty. And we know if they can't read by third grade, that's, that's the largest statistical correlate to them graduating high school, incarceration rates, and all these other really troublesome things. And so, like any business, we look at a problem, you know, and if, it, if that fact persisted in Red Ventures or in Movement Mortgage, we, we, we would have stiffed it out and figured it out and, 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 and reformed it long ago. But somehow it's hard to have ownership over some of these things because, you know, they're they're big bureaucratic systems and they're complex and they're hard to fix. Um, But the state and federal governments have offered a vehicle for folks to um, do education. And so it's called a public charter. And we received one from the state of North Carolina. And essentially what a public charter does is you teach a um, state approved curriculum. To your children, and then you're evaluated at the end of the year on how you did relative you to your peers. But you only
1: get seventy cents instead of a dollar. <laughs>
2: this is true. There are some handicaps to it. You don't get quite the funding that the traditional public school gets. But you know, I'm okay. I'm okay with some of that. Um, and I do think because I do think, frankly, we can we can do more. We can do more yeah. with less with less dollars. And so what we've actually seen is that yeah, we're able to have two and three hundred percent better academic results. Yeah, but
1: but but I'm not okay with that, right? Like we have thirty-seven F schools. Yeah. Out of thirty seven. Yeah. Yeah. And you have three X the outcomes they're having with the same kids. Yeah. Same kids. Yeah. And the government who is the one who's funding this, you know, I think I think this this has to be elevated. I you know? think and so I think too. the and state blue, of the yeah. state of the the state of our of our state. And I know this is bigger than our state, yeah. but I know we, we, crisis creates opportunities. And I think right now we have a crisis in Charlotte. I think we have a crisis in our state. I think we have a crisis in our country. And I think your kind of story, and I know there's a lot of other people that are around this charter school uh, issue. Uh, you know, that's why, that's why I'm so energized to kind of elevate this for you and with you.
2: Well, I appreciate it. And It's like any other solution. It's not perfect. And, and charter schools have been done poorly. Sometimes they've been done well. I think they were they were newer about 20 years ago, but it it has been proven now and, and shown over and over in the Wall Street Journal and a lot, a lot of independent folks have looked at this issue and seen that public charter school networks are able to most effectively serve Black and Brown children born into poverty. They they do it exceptionally well, and those kids benefit most dramatically from these school systems. Yeah. And so we've studied this across the U.S. and folks are doing it. It gets tough because you start getting into unions and different things, and and unfortunately, it's adults fighting for power and control and things that they once had, not going, hey, what is the most pragmatic solution for the child? And, you know, there are a lot of great people that are in the education system. And I think, you know, gosh, we we just got to start solving problems much more like we would in our businesses and and expect and demand results. Like we we cannot be okay, to your point, with 37 F-rated elementary schools in our city. Just
1: can't do it. We have to be better. We could probably spend the next hour talking about this, so we're going to move on a little <laughs> bit. Um, let's talk about the pandemic mm. uh, for a minute. I know it's been a, a massive <sighs> boom for uh, you know our mortgage businesses, but what's it been like for you personally? What's it been like for your two daughters? You have two teenage girls, yeah, and that's not easy. What's what's
2: man? So I, th- I think th- the more folks I talk to, the the pandemic has been. um there are really two stories that get played out for me i have a nice home my kids my wife um, is able to 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 help with my kids education Um, we have wi-fi we have tablets we had ability to like to mentor and tutor our kids and frankly the pandemic was a really nice year or two of getting to see my kids a whole lot more than i did before because they're at home and our family was at home together for two years it was a gift in a lot of ways it really was in a lot of ways Conversely, I saw the experience of the families of the children that are at movement schools. Mm. A lot of our kids at our school, two of the three meals they receive are at our school. Mm. Most times, one or both parents couldn't stop working. They're out of the job. So who's watching our kindergartners, first graders, second graders? We had, we had, we had, we had second and third graders watching kindergartners. In apartment complexes. And we had, we had teachers not worried about educating the kids, worried about feeding the kids. We had teachers going out with bags of groceries, trying to get our kids groceries and food. And so, you know, when crisis hits, um, it exacerbates some of the situations in America. And I think, like, the wealth divide and poverty and some of these big persistent problems uh, were, were really exposed in more dramatic ways. And I think we, unfortunately, we, we, I think you've seen it culturally. Like, we've separated even further. We've been more divided as a nation than we've ever been. Um, and, and I think, you know, COVID exacerbated a lot of that. And, and that's, it's a shame, but I think it's also highlighted the need to change some things and change some of our approaches to some of these big systemic problems in society. And so I think it, it made us redouble, um, I think, our commitment and our effort towards, um, again, helping, helping kids and helping families escape some
1: of these trappings of poverty because they are so, so difficult. You know, I know this charter school endeavor, is a, it's a long cycle thing. You have to start a grade and grow a grade <laughs> yeah. and then, you know, yeah. licensing and wait for results and real estate and all that. So fast forward 10 years from now, how, yeah. how many kids in the movement school system, aspirationally?
2: Yeah, t- so 10 years from now, I just made a commitment that we're going to build 100 schools in the next 10 years. And um, that's not nearly enough. That's not nearly enough. But what we hope to do with that, Rick, is is set a model, set a standard, and be an example setter for others that you can build successful charter networks at scale. Right. And then take that model and give it away. Give it away. We want, we want to see copycats all over the United States transforming education for the urban poor. And we want to actually attract capital to right. this problem. We're, we're actually business people like you and I go, hey, there is an opportunity to educate kids with excellence. And if I do so, we can make a profit. Right.
1: We had breakfast the other day talking about this and, yeah. and figuring out, you know, kind of how to how to kind of advocate for this. But it occurred to me that you you may end up end up uh, growing into your name, you know that. It's only a movement if you get a mm. follower. <laughs> so right now you're the crazy guy. This is uh, so oh, that's There so you true. go. Yeah. Once we get other yeah. people in other Once places again, yeah. dreaming of their hundred schools, <laughs> you you officially have earned know. your name. And dude. we
2: follow in the footsteps of like, you know, just some some amazing yes, leaders who yes. have done this. That's it, okay. It's We're going to take complete
1: yeah. You're going to take complete authorship right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, let's uh, let's pivot a little bit back to kind of modern uh, modern times. What, what's your view on inflation, and oh how wary are you about it as it relates to your business? And you, you, you've told me you can make a lot of money in mortgage if you if you are willing to live with the highs and lows. <laughs> Don't get too high, too low. But yeah,
2: So um, in our in our business, the, the kind of the, the key to consistency is is purchase focus. And so you know if you kind of look back over the long history of mortgages, the last twenty years we've been in a descending rate environment. And that's led to a lot of companies focusing on refinances. And mm-hmm. that's, that's been a great strategy for, for, for a couple of decades because our federal government continues to lower interest rates, you know, to right. kind of keep the economy rolling. And um, so I think, you know, when, when, when you do start looking and thinking about inflation, being focused on the purchase market really is important. And, and movement in, in most markets is about 93% purchase. Right. So it doesn't mean, you, you know, you go through a storm unscathed. But it does mean that as long as Americans are buying homes, right. um, you have business opportunity there. Right. So, the, you know, the, we're, we're kind of staying stand the course in that the, listen, the refinance booms are great for the mortgage business. And you take advantage of them when they come. But uh, they're, they're not where you build an enduring, I think, business. Where you build an enduring business and help people purchase homes, uh, not just continue to lower the cost of that mortgage.
1: Very quickly, I'm just curious, having asked you this, the, the mm-hmm. whole mortgage forbearance Program and that coming to an end and all of that. Any, 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 anything you're watching there.
2: So I thought when COVID came out and Calabria um, came out with it with a statement and said, if you have been affected by COVID, you do not need to make your mortgage payment. Mm-hmm. Okay, <laughs> not infected with COVID, affected by COVID. <laughs> right? I lost my mind. I called my wife to babe like the so world everything. is about to crash. Like it was, it was kind of like that you said, too big to fail, and Geithner's coming out of the, the subway station. She's going, no one knows. Like all this, I, I was having that moment, like in Charlotte, North Carolina, going down Indyland Highway. Right. You know, like, the world is about to stop. He just told everyone, if you've been affected, like if it concerns you, if you're having a bad day this morning, like you don't need to make your mortgage payment. And they went back to like the, the the servicers was like, hey, you're gonna make them for these guys for as long as you can. Yeah, and so it was like it was like untenable, and like everyone's losing their mind in the mortgage space. And Rick, it's 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 crazy. It just kind of went away. It just the conversation just kind of went really away. And everywhere uh, you know all the all the you know, kind of mortgage execs and banking execs are calling each other. do you hear this? What are you going to do? How are you going to deal with this? Uh, is your phone melting? Like are you having you know hundreds yeah, yeah. of thousands of borrowers just call you and go, hey, uh, thanks so much for my mortgage. I'll, I'll catch you in twenty twenty two. Nothing. And and people just didn't do it. People did. And Nothing. you know what? He called it. And it, as critical as I was of him of that yeah. decision. Um, you know, the, 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 levels of default and the levels of people that went into forbearance was, was about what they anticipated and expected. I, here's my fundamental, here's what my fundamental concern with a lot of forbearance and even, even a lot of the forgiveness of loans, um, before COVID back, back when the, you know, the great recession was kind of coming through that we've begun to lose, I think in America, um, a sense of responsibility, personal responsibility for hmm. a contract, for, um, you know, th- frankly, some banks did a lot of bad loans. Other, other folks knew exactly what they were getting into. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I get, wait, it's not my fault. I don't have to make good on this contract. I don't have to pay you back. It's somebody else's problem. The federal government absorbs it. And we all kind of absorb it. Right. You know, yeah, we yeah, all we kind of absorb it for each other. Paper, right? the tax, right? Exactly. And so I, I worry about or that. Or we print more money. Bit. Exactly, yeah, and, and and this is just this is unsustainable, right? Yeah, this unsustainable. is unsustainable at some points, and so I kind of fundamentally worry about an erosion of culture. Where like, yeah. you know, my, my, I remember my father. Um, we we had a little hardware store, and one point, you know, he was worried about it, and I remember him telling me, he said, "I'll work for the rest of my life to pay off this debt."
1: Hmm.
2: He's like, "I gave this person my word. I'll work for the rest of my life to pay off this debt." And He meant it, and he wasn't saying it like you know in some kind of Um, You know, martyr statement. He he was just telling me that like that's 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 what commitment and truth and integrity look like. And 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 man, we we've come pretty far from that now. And I I, as as a community in in, in
1: culture, you know, I'll pay it as long as it doesn't hurt too much. So I guess you're not a big fan of buy now pay later.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's a horrible strategy. You know what? Again, we talk about what traps people in poverty. It's debt. And yeah, paying for things is the opposite of credit. Right? It's like debt. You know, that's
1: so true. so, are you worried about inflation? Um, I mean, I, I, what I do you hope real? the government does? <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, so I mean, this is like this is kind of masochistic. I I, I always kind of I, I feel like America should feel a little bit more pain sometimes. I, I worry about this continued kicking the can down the road. Yeah, and we have a mutual friend, Erskine Bowles. Yeah, um yeah, you know, yeah, I remember the 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 Simpson rest, Bowles the economic best. reform? Yeah, yeah. and I, and I got to talk with him and Alan Simpson about like the whole plan, right? Yeah. And. And this was—I thought it was a really brilliant um, attempt, uh, frankly, of Obama to to try to, like, unify the nation around an economic plan to put us um, on good financial footing. And Er Erskine, the, the most poignant line that I remember in him describing that, he goes, everyone, every governor, every senator, everyone loved our plan except for one part. What was that? The part where we asked them to make a little sacrifice.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: She's like, so AARP, you know, he's like, I want to push back retirement by like six months. Because by the way, like Social Security was designed to pay out for three years. And now it pays out for like 23 years, right? Like, So we just said, hey, can we just push it back six months? So in 15 years, when people start retiring, can we push? And these little edge, you know, sacrifices that that all of us as citizens were going to have to make for the community and for the common good, no one was willing to make. Yeah. And so I do I do I worry about our, our nation at some point. And I asked him, I said, what's it gonna take? He goes hitting a brick wall. Yeah.
1: yeah.
2: And that he was really sad. He was really sad to say that. And it, it, it kind of shocked me because he's as thoughtful and informed as informed as anyone I know on these, yeah. you know.
1: Yeah. Very interesting. Listen, I um I wanna ask you a, a kind of a, a more personal question. <laughs> I view you as somebody who is constantly learning, growing, humble super successful in the eyes of others, but to me your success is really around the the strength of your relationships at home, mm-hmm. the friendships that you have in, in, in your life, and, and really the game that you get to play. What, what, is, what advice would you give somebody that is in their 20s around what does it take to build a life that feels purposeful and feels joyful? Wow, wow, that's a big one. Um, I do feel really
2: blessed to have a great wife, you know, married 20 years, two girls that I adore, great friends, like really, really great friends, some just really great friends. And um, I think what I talk with a lot of, like what I talk with my own kids about, and what I talk with a lot of young folks about is, um, man, like I said, the world didn't need one more mortgage bank. Like the world made Rick, like made you beautifully, uniquely crafted. And, like, go on mission in life. Like, live a life that's on mission with, with other men and women that you love. Yeah. And, uh, and run hard after doing something that's meaningful and impactful that you can kind of look back on and be proud about. Yeah. I, d- d- so much of what I saw, and I think so much of the track that I was on was like getting, I did all the things that I was supposed to do. And I went to UVA and they go, what do you want to be? And I said, like, um, an investment banker. I said that because the smart kids said they want to go to an investment banker like oh where do you want to work well Goldman Sachs you know like and it was just, it was like this this track like this fundamental and it was just it wasn't bad I was just trying to kind of do the right thing I said man you know the world didn't need one Goldman Sachs definitely didn't need one more investment banker man but the world like did need me to kind of use and express any of the gifts and talents and passions I have hopefully in a way that was significant that was about lifting others up and hopefully for my own life that I got to do it with some men and women that I love and value and you know respect and we could have the joy of reflecting back on our journey together seeing uh-huh. that we did some really meaningful work with people we loved and uh you know for for, for me that that's kind of well, it's been a secret but that, that's been a formula
1: I think that it's brought a lot of joy to my life you know, a lot of purpose. Listen Casey I honor to be your friend I'm grateful that you're here today and Keep up the great work, and we're going to do some great stuff together. I am so glad you guys got to hear and get to know Casey the way I do. Here are the three things I took from our conversation. Number one is that facing adversity builds resilience over time. Are you injured or hurt? In life, a lot of times we think we're injured, but in reality, we're just hurt. We need to practice getting up and doing it again. That is success. Number two, I love how he rephrased the whole success and significance thing. Success ends with you, significance starts with others. Think about what you're trying to accomplish and build in helping others along the way. And number three is that the world made us all unique. We don't need to live a life according to someone else's script. Live a life that's on mission. Run hard towards something that's meaningful and impactful
0: and you will find joy in your journey. Rick shared his three things, but we want to know your takeaways as well. Tweet at Rick Elias to let us know your thoughts on this conversation. And be sure to check out additional content, videos, and more at our blog, threethings.redventures.com. Thanks for listening.